You're listening to a sermon preached at Chao English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray with thanks to you because we can gather freely as your people to hear your word and to respond to your word. Father, please give us minds to understand what your word says. Please give us hearts willing to obey you no matter what the cost. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Not too long ago, I was talking to a Christian man. Uh, He's a very serious Christian. He's a very committed Christian man. And I asked him, what is it that's helped you become so earnest? What's helped you become so genuine and passionate? What's helped you become so strong about your faith? And he said this. He said, I became a Christian when I was 25, but my family was really against it. His family, a Buddhist. So, for the first couple of years, he said, I was a secret Christian, a closet Christian. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my mom or my dad. I didn't tell my brother. I didn't tell anyone about my faith. But then one day, my pastor, he spoke to me about baptism. And at that point, I had to make a call. I had to say to myself, is this real? Or am I just playing games? He said, I thought it through. And I came to the conclusion that it is real. And so I realized that Jesus has to be number one and my family has to be number two. And so, with the knowledge of my whole family, I got publicly baptized even though they didn't want me to. Now, as it turned out, his family didn't take it as bad as he thought. But can you see what's happened? When the pressure was on, when his faith was going to cost him something, when he had to actually put Jesus as number one, and that meant getting serious about it and putting something else to be moved to number two, that's when he had to get serious about his faith. That's when he had to make sure, and that is what strengthened him in his faith. I was talking to another man quite recently about his Christian story. Uh, He had grown up in a Christian home. He believed in Jesus, but it didn't really impact on his life. But then he fell in love with a non-Christian girl and he was about to get engaged to her. And as he was thinking about marriage with this girl, he started to think about his faith. He thought about the kind of relationship that he had and he thought to himself, if I do this, if I marry her, it basically kisses goodbye to my living as a Christian. If I marry this girl, we are not going to live as Christians. And so he thought to himself, I better make sure that there's nothing to my parents' Christianity, nothing to my parents' religion. And so he investigated. He read a couple of books. He thought about it. And eventually he came to the conclusion that Christianity is true. He spoke to his fiancée about it, and she wanted no part of it. And so he broke up the relationship. Again, there was that point of pressure, the point where his faith was going to cost him something. That, that's when he had to get really serious. Friends, it's easy, don't you reckon, to kind of just drift along as a Christian. You don't question it. You don't have serious doubts about it, but it doesn't really change anything either. You're not taking it very seriously. But then suddenly, 
something comes up. Something happens in your life and you see that following Jesus is going to cost you. Maybe you face persecution for the first time. Maybe you're challenged to invest some serious time in being a Christian. Or maybe you see that there's a relationship that you need to give up or a friendship that you might need to break off. Whatever it is, you recognize that if Jesus is going to be number one, then that's going to cost you. And so it forces you to make a call. You need to be sure. Either it's real and you've got to get serious and pay the cost, or else it's not real and you've got to stop playing games. If it's not true, if, if it's not worth paying a cost for, well, then it's not worth anything. Well, as we come into chapter 32 of this book of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah having to pay a massive cost for being a prophet of God. The year is 588 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Judah, he's rebelled against the emperor of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And in response, Nebuchadnezzar has brought his army, the biggest army in the known world at the time, he's brought his great army and he has laid siege to Jerusalem. He surrounded Jerusalem and meanwhile, Jeremiah himself, he's in jail. He's in jail because he's prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar will win victory and that Jerusalem will be defeated and that King Zedekiah will be handed over. Friends, look with me in your Bibles at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1 to 5. Chapter 32, verse 1 to 5. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. That's 588 B.C. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So here's the situation. Let's get ourselves in the picture. Jerusalem and Judah, they're about to be conquered. They're about to be destroyed. All the land is going to be taken over by the Babylonians. The vast majority of people are going to be killed and the few remaining survivors are going to be taken off into exile for a lifetime, we saw last week, for three generations. Jeremiah himself finds himself in jail. Here he is, alone, no support, no friends. He's terribly persecuted, he's in danger. And with all this background into this scene, God gives a very strange request for Jeremiah. God asked Jeremiah to invest in the local property market. Have a look with me at verse 6 to 8. Verse 6 to 8. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then... Just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Jeremiah knows that this is God's will and so he does it. 
Even though he knows Babylon is about to conquer the land, even though he knows he will never get to probably even see this land, let alone enjoy this land, look at me at verse 8 to 10. Halfway through verse 8 to 10. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. No doubt, cousin Hanamel pockets the money and heads off probably to a mad resort in Egypt or something. Uh, but what Jeremiah does, uh, because he knows that the exile will last a very long time, what he does is he gives the property documents to a witness. And he asks this witness to store them away in pots. That's the way they used to preserve important documents back in those days. For example, if you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were discovered, preserved in clay pots. So he has to preserve these documents in clay pots so that they'll last a long time. And then he gives God's reason why he's done all this. It's because, he says, the Jews will return to their land. Property will once again be bought and sold. And these documents, they will testify that Jeremiah predicted it, that Jeremiah knew it all along. In fact, Jeremiah was willing to bet his house on God's promises. Judah will come back from exile. Look with me at verse 11 to 15. Chapter 32, verse 11 to 15. I took the deed of purchase the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as an unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Marseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Well, that was an expensive exercise for Jeremiah. Uh, this is not the sort of financial advice that you read in the Australian Financial Review, you know, advice that goes, you know, go and buy property that's about to be conquered. Uh, this is crazy stuff. And Jeremiah is a good Jewish boy. He knows the value of money. 17 shekels, it's not a joke. 17 shekels have just been thrown away here. For what? For the sake of prophecy, for the sake of a prophecy. And so Jeremiah, what he does is he turns to God in prayer. And he starts off, with a whole heap of praise to God. He says, God, you're so powerful. You made everything. You've shown your power in Israel's history. You brought us to the land. You're the one that's taking us out. You're the king. Look with me at verse 16 to 23. Verse 16 to 23. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. 
You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. You performed signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do, so you brought all this disaster on them. Jeremiah says, God, you are awesome. You are so powerful. You made everything. You can do everything. You're in total control of history, the good and the bad. But God, says Jeremiah, that was weird what you just made me do. Why would you make me buy property when we're about to be conquered by Babylon? Look with me at verse 24 and 25. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. It's a strange thing to do, a costly thing to do. And I'm sure all the good Asian members here at Chemistry are with the Jews on this. It's a very wasteful thing to do, to buy property that's going to be conquered. If you're here today and you're a homeowner, you can just see what a costly thing this was. And so, God answers Jeremiah. He responds. And time and time and time again over these next two chapters, God assures Jeremiah and then reassures Jeremiah that everything he's prophesied will come true. He says, firstly, I will destroy Judah. Look with me at verse 26 to 28. Verse 26 to 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. God says Babylon will have victory over Judah, and he goes on to give all the reasons why. Judah have been idolatrous. They've been disobedient. Look with me at verse 30. It summarizes it. Verse 30 and 31. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. Judah will be conquered. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because God says he's going to do something unique in human history. He's going to do something unprecedented in human history, and it's this. The Jews will maintain their integrity as a race in exile, and God will bring them back to the land. In addition, God will bring them back, and he will change them. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, God is going to change their hearts so that they will love him and they will obey him and be his people forever. Look with me at verse 36 to 41. Verse 36 to 41. You are saying about this city, 
By the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Once again, God says, land will be bought and sold in Judah. Look with me at verse 43 and 44. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And these documents will be the witnesses. Jeremiah knew it all along. Jeremiah was willing to bet his house on God's promises but it's still a very big thing to do. It's it's still a very, very costly exercise. And so in the next chapter, God reiterates his promise. Jeremiah has bet his house on these promises. He's obviously a little bit concerned about it. And so God gives the same promises again a second time. Look with me at chapter 33 and verse one. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the God, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And just a quick summary, God says again, verse 2 to 5, Judah will be defeated and destroyed. But he says again, verse 6 to 14, that he will restore them. God then promises to raise up a righteous king from the line of David. And we pick it up in verse 15, chapter 33, verse 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. The kingship will be forever in the line of David. God also says the sacrificial system will last forever. There will always be a priest to offer sacrifices for Israel's sin. Look with me at verse 17, 18. Verse 17, 18. But this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, or will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices? God repeats his promises to Judah to make sure of it, but it's still not finished, because God then goes on again and again and again to affirm that these promises are indeed true, to affirm that what he has said will come to fruition. Jeremiah has bet his house on it, and so again and again, God assures him that he will keep his promises. God says, it's as sure as day follows night. Look with me at verse 25. You know, it's said in a little bit that's uh, it's a bit upside down, verse 25, 26, but see if you can follow this. Look at verse 25 and 26. This is what the Lord says. 
If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you get that? It's a little bit confusing, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, if he has not made his covenant with day and night, if day and night cease, well then sure, God's promises will cease. They will fail. But his promises are not going to cease because day and night are not going to cease. His promises are as sure as day follows night. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. All right, friends. Well, can you see what's here in these two chapters? Jerusalem under siege, surrounded. It's about to be destroyed. Jeremiah, our man, here he is in prison. He's in jail for his prophesying and God asks him to buy a property. Jeremiah prays. He says, you are a very powerful God, but that was a strange thing to make me do. And so, over and over and over again, God reaffirms his promises. Judah will be conquered and God will restore them. The Jews will come home. Land will once again be bought and sold. God will restore the kingship in the line of David. God will restore the priesthood forever. It's as sure as day and night. It's a done deal. Yes, Jeremiah, it is costly, but it will come true. All right. It is costly for Jeremiah to be a prophet, isn't it? I mean, here he is. He's in jail. His life is in danger. And now he has to buy this house, this property that he's never going to get to live in to show the certainty of God's promise. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was doing what I like to do in my spare time and I was listening to some sport commentators on the internet and they were talking about how the basketball team, the Brooklyn Nets, were going to benefit from a trade that they recently made. And if you know the world of professional sports, what happens is teams, they trade players. Um, so the Brooklyn Nets, they brought in some players from another team, they made a trade. And these commentators I was listening to, um, they were convinced that these new players were actually going to contribute to the team's playoff run. Uh, but the thing I remember the commentator saying was this. He was saying, you know what? I'm willing to bet my house on these players com- contributing. He said, I'm willing to bet my house on the Brooklyn Nets going to the playoffs. It's a bit of a saying, right? I'd bet my house on it. it it's a way of saying that you're so sure of it. You're so confident about this. I mean, You would want to be very, very confident, very, very sure before you risked your house on something like that, right? It's a a way of saying that you are certain that it's true. Well, that's what God's asking Jeremiah to do here, isn't it? God has promised to restore Israel to the land after the exile and he's getting Jeremiah to stake his house on it. And so it's no wonder Jeremiah responds and raises the issue in prayer. And it's no wonder that God responds to Jeremiah by assuring him again and again and again, this was a very costly decision. You needed to be very sure about it. As you've seen over the last couple of weeks, Jeremiah's certainty was vindicated, wasn't it? We've seen it time and time again God did keep the promises that he made through Jeremiah. 
One year after this, 587 BC, what Jeremiah predicted came true. Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed. And then, for the first time in history, 48 years later, in 539 BC, God did bring the Jews back to the land of Judah. The land was, once again, bought and sold in Judah. Of course, that wasn't the end of the fulfillment of God's promises, was it? Because we know as Christians that in further fulfillment, hundreds of years later, God sent Jesus to fulfill the promises that he'd made through Jeremiah. Jesus died to offer a once-for-all eternal sacrifice for our sins, and God raised Jesus back to life as our eternal priest to always intercede for us, just like God promised here in Jeremiah. Here in Jeremiah, where he says, there will always be a priest to present sacrifice. We know, of course, that Jesus was in the line of King David. And when God raised Jesus back to life as our eternal king, again, it fulfilled what Jeremiah prophesied, that God would give David an eternal dynasty. The risen Lord Jesus has indeed poured out his Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of his people, transforming us from the inside out, just as God promised here in Jeremiah. God has fulfilled his promises through Jeremiah. And friends, get this, the day will come when God's promises will finally and ultimately be fulfilled. When King Jesus will come back when every single knee will bow to him as king, and when we will live in peace and safety and security and great joy as God's transformed people in the new Jerusalem, the ultimate promised land for an eternity. Church, as I said last week, I know that this is old news for most of us. If you're a churchy person like me, you've probably heard this stuff thousands of times, the Jesus stuff. You've, you've heard hundreds of times that your true home is in heaven. You've heard so many times that Jesus is the eternal king, that he's the great sacrifice for our sins. But the question Jeremiah leaves us with is this. If it came down to it, would you bet your house on it like Jeremiah had to? Would you bet your house on these truths? You see, some of us, we're sitting here today and we are playing games with God. For some of us, our so-called Christian faith, it makes absolutely no difference to our lives. The way we live our lives, our priorities, we look exactly the same as a perishing pagan world that we live in. For some of us, it's like we're hedging our bets it's like we're having an each-way bet. You know what an each-way bet is, right? An each-way bet is when you bet for both teams. You put 20 bucks down on your team and 20 bucks down on the other team, so you win either way. An each-way bet is beautiful because you don't lose anything. If your team wins, you win. If your team loses, you still win. It's a great kind of a bet, but it's kind of stupid because you don't gain anything. You don't risk anything. And you walk away even, no matter what happens. And friends, I think many of us, we've got an each-way bet on King Jesus. We say, yes, we believe in Jesus. But just in case, we'll give a minimum of thought, a minimum of time, a minimum of effort, a minimum of money, a minimum of sacrifice for Jesus. And even though, yeah, sure, we've got our eggs in that basket, we will make sure that we miss out on nothing that this world has to offer. 
Because deep down, we don't know if this is real or not. Friends, I don't think Jesus will let us get away with it. You might remember what Jesus said. He said this. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Church, can I say this to you? Jesus will not accept an each-way bet. As long as you try to serve two masters, as long as you try and hedge your bets, you will never please either of these masters. As long as you hedge your bets, as long as it costs you nothing to be a Christian, you will never be pleasing to King Jesus. King Jesus demands to be number one priority in your life. And so there must come times in your life where that will cost you. There must come times in your life when you realize you have to make a decision to put something else underneath King Jesus. There are times when God will call you to pay a price. And so here's the challenge, church. When it comes down to it, will you bet your house on Jesus? Well, what's that going to mean for us? How do we respond to these two chapters that we've read today? Well, by way of application, I think it means what it says. Because I think that's what it meant for a lot of people in the early church, right? The Bible says in the book of Acts that the early church had no needy people among them. Let me read to you from the book of Acts. Why? Acts 4, 34, 35. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. Maybe when we hear about our brothers and sisters who've lost everything to floods in Lismore, or when we hear about our Christian brothers and sisters who've lost everything because of war breaking out in Ukraine, or when we hear about African children in townships who need money to go to a good school like the Itemba school to receive a decent education, or maybe when we hear about Bible college students who need to be supported. And listen, listen. I'm not complaining about how generous our church family is. I'm not complaining about the 4,000 bucks we raised the other week for Ukraine, but I don't think anyone sold their house to give to our needy brothers and sisters. You know, the thing with giving is this. You know, there's giving and there's giving. There's giving that can be done in a religious way because we're churchy people, we're like, it's the right thing to do, his 10% easy. But there's also giving that says, no, Jesus is king his kingdom is my priority and I want to give in a meaningful way so that I'm actually contributing. I want this to be my gift to God. And I just wonder, church, I just wonder if as a church, if we've become a little bit too casual with our giving. I wonder if we give just because it's the right thing to do. We set up an automated payment and we tick a box and we think, well, I'm a good churchy person. I've done my duty, the pastor can feed his family, we're, we're good. But I just wonder if God is calling some of us, most of us, all of us, to return to biblical giving, 
giving to the gospel, giving our first fruits, giving so that it hurts. And in light of what we're reading here in these two chapters, friends, maybe that's what God wants you to do, to sell your house and to give your money to needy Christians. You should get in, you should get in touch with the persecuted church, Open Doors, Barnabas Fund. There are thousands of persecuted Christians that could need your money and my money a lot more than we need it right now. Or maybe, maybe the cost that God is calling you to pay is not quite so radical. Maybe you are being called upon by God today to start putting Jesus above your family. Maybe that means you need to publicly stand up as a Christian and get baptized and let your family and friends know, I am a Christian whether you like it or not. Maybe you need to let the people at work know that you are a Christian and that Jesus is number one for you and everything else is a far number two, including work. Or maybe God is calling on you today to end that friendship which you know is harmful for you, which keeps leading you in sin. Or maybe for some of you, God is calling on you today to end that romantic relationship which you know is leading you away from Christ and his purposes for your life. Maybe some of us in this room are being called by God to really start considering giving up your life for full-time gospel ministry, to be trained up to become a pastor or a missionary, a Bible translator, a chaplain. Friends, the need is great. Or maybe, maybe you're just being called upon God today through this word to start getting serious about church and to stop being a fringe dweller. Maybe God is calling upon you today to stop putting Jesus as priority number three or number 30 in your life, and maybe it's calling on you to get your church attendance legitimate, to come in from the fringe, and to start spending a significant amount of your precious time in service to King Jesus. Maybe you need to start giving money to support gospel ministry, giving so that it hurts, giving so that it shows that Jesus is number one in your life. Whatever it is, the question is, are you willing to count the cost and to put King Jesus as number one priority in your life? Are you willing to pay whatever price it takes to serve Jesus? Are you willing to bet your house on it? And friend, if you are not, if you are not sure whether Jesus is worth it, then you need to make sure. Do the research, read the Bible, Read history. Think carefully about this because if this is real, then no price is too much to pay, right? Surely. But if this is not real, then we need to stop mucking around and we need to stop playing games. But friends, let me say this. God's promises, they are real. Jesus is the eternal king and savior promised by Jeremiah. You can bet your house on it. You can bet your whole life on it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our loving heavenly father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who has offered the eternal sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our priest who brings us into your presence. Father, we thank you that you have raised him from the dead 
as our eternal king. Lord, we thank you that you have prepared a true home for us. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us to not serve two masters, but help us to serve King Jesus and King Jesus only. Help us, Lord, as individuals and as a church to put Jesus as priority number one in our lives. For we ask it in his name. Amen.